The following sermon is from the archives of Dr. Stephen Olford. It was preached during his distinguished ministry at Calvary Baptist Church in New York City. Continuing our sermon series, God's Answer to the Burning Issues of Today, our sermon today, God's Answer to Social Unconcern, our text, James 1, 22, 26, and 27. Now, here is Dr. Stephen Olford. Let's spend just a moment in quiet prayer. Life is so busy. Our programs are so hectic. The world outside is so noisy. How wonderful to come apart in a sanctuary such as this, just to be still and to know that he is God. Pray for yourself. Ask God to speak to your waiting heart. Pray for the preacher. Pray for the message, that it may come with all demonstration and power in the Holy Spirit. The supreme message of the gospel is that Jesus cares. He left heaven and came to earth because he cares. He died upon a cross in shame and sacrifice because he cares. He rose from the dead and went back to heaven and sent the Holy Spirit to make his life available to men and women because he cares. He's here tonight unseen to natural eyes, but real to faith, waiting to enter our empty lives because he cares. He wants to transform that life of yours and make it all that God ever intended it to be because he cares. So, blessed Lord, breathe upon us by thy Holy Spirit and cause these closing moments of this service to be moments of destiny, moments of the divine human encounter, moments of a glorious meeting with Jesus Christ, the Son of God, moments of repentance, of faith, moments of forgiveness, pardon, and power, moments of blessing. For every waiting heart, we ask it for Jesus' sake. Amen. I want you to turn to the epistle of James, chapter 1. Once again, I want to address your attention to the verses that were read to us a little earlier. First of all, in verse 22, Be ye doers of the word, and not hearers only. Verse 26, If any man among you seem to be religious, and bridleth not his tongue, but deceiveth his own heart, this man's religion is vain, empty, pure religion, and undefiled before God and the Father is this, to visit the fatherless and widow in their affliction, and to keep himself unspotted from the world. Our theme tonight in our series, The Burning Issues of the Day, is God's answer to social unconcern. God's answer to social unconcern. And while there are many passages throughout the Word of God that we could select to speak to this subject, I know no more pregnant and potent one than the verses we have read together. I suppose of all the New Testament writers, the most practical and down-to-earth and relevant is the Apostle James, the brother of our Lord. The entire theme of his epistle is a belief that behaves, a faith that functions, a trust that triumphs. He's not interested in anything that's irrelevant. He's not interested in anything that doesn't work. Faith without works is dead, he says. And he comes to this first chapter we call our first chapter today, and he talks about a pure religion, a word which one might even paraphrase as saying Christianity in action. The word actually means worship in action. And he says no man can know that concept of God which makes him worship. No one can know God in all the reality of his revelation in Jesus Christ. No one can look into the face of Jesus Christ and meet Jesus Christ and do nothing about it. 
Pure religion is worship in action. Man going through to relate his religion to a world of desperate need outside. Edie says a man who's a doer of the word is a man who's truly religious. A man who's a hearer of the word but not a doer of the word is a sheer hypocrite. It's like a man who looks into the mirror, sees his face is black or defiled or soiled and won't go and wash himself and do something about it. He forgets what he's like instead of acting upon what he sees. God's answer to social unconcern then is a vital religion which works. And I want us to see this in three aspects tonight, very simply and briefly. First of all, I want you to see that God's answer to social unconcern is what I'm going to call the reality of true religion. The reality of true religion. And in using that word religion, my friends, I use it in the context in which I have already set it. The word religion, religio, to bind back is misunderstood in the world today. And in fact, there is a lot that goes by the name of religion, which is best buried. It reminds me of a friend of mine in Britain who was an Anglican or an Episcopalian minister. And you know, the job of an Anglican or Episcopalian minister in Britain is to go around visiting his parish, like many other pastors, knocking at people's doors and finding out how they are. He called at one door and he knocked and the lady came out who was obviously rather hard of hearing. And having talked for a few moments, having got very far, he thought he ought to communicate something of the word. So he said, I say, my friend, have you got religion? She said, eh? My friend, have you got religion? Eh, she said. She couldn't quite catch it. Have you got religion? She said, did you say rheumatism? I get it now and again. And quite frankly, for most people, religion is nothing more than just that. You've got just enough religion to make you thoroughly miserable. I'm not talking about that tonight. In using this word religion, I mean that vital relationship with God and Jesus Christ, as we shall see, which not only transforms your life, but gives you a passion to do something about it in the desperate world in which you live. Very well, then. God's answer to social unconcern is, first of all, the reality of true religion. The reality of true religion. Pure religion and undefiled before God and the Father is this. And James introduces this by saying, Be ye doers of the word, not hearers only. Be ye doers of the word and not hearers only. For pure religion and undefiled before God and the Father is this. This very thing worked out in visiting the fatherless and the widows who are afflicted in the world. I want you to notice that reality in religion is first of all a biblical relatedness to God. A biblical relatedness to God. And I'm deliberately using that word biblical because the word is used here. A biblical relatedness to God. Or if you prefer a scriptural relatedness to God. Be ye doers of the word. And I want to say that where all social work has gone wrong down through the centuries is where it's been divorced from the Word of God. Biblical relatedness to the Word of God. Be ye doers of the Word. Doers of the Word. And I'm impressed with this. I'm impressed with this. Dr. Graeb Scruggy, that great scholar and student of the Bible, points out in a remarkable fashion that James must have been an outstanding student of the Old Testament Scriptures. In five short chapters in this epistle, 108 verses or thereabouts, there are no less than 
21 references to the Old Testament scriptures. That is to say, 21 references or allusions to the Old Testament scriptures, so that this man, James, before he writes this epistle, has done research into at least 21 separate books of the Old Testament, and having read them and reread them, researched them and re-researched them, has come to a conviction that there is a message of God in revelation to mankind upon which we've got to act, and not to act is a faith without works. Be ye doers of the word, and not hearers only. And I want to say, my friend, that all truth, as we know it redemptively, comes through the word of God. The Bible doesn't contain the word of God. The Bible is the word of God. The Bible is the revelation of God in Jesus Christ. And the world is lost without light, without this wonderful book. This book is the lamp and the light. The light to shine, the lamp to follow. This book shows us how to be related to God. In fact, it might amaze many people to discover here tonight that though poetry is found in this wonderful book, though history is found in this wonderful book, though prophecy is found in this wonderful book, though doctrine is found in this wonderful book, though exhortation is found in this wonderful book, in the last analysis, the message of the Bible is the message of how men and women might be related to a holy God, biblical relatedness to God. I want to say any work that's ever done in the world that's not related to the Word of God, any work that's done even though it be philanthropic, humanitarian, though it be sacrificial, that's not related to the Word of God, may be recognized by men, but will never be recognized by God. Mark that and mark it very solemnly and very seriously here tonight. So the Bible says, Be doers of the Word and not hearers only. And if you have been neglecting this book, if you've not been reading this book, if you've not been studying this book, may this be a message to your heart to start tonight. God's holy word, the Bible. But the reality of religion is not only a question of biblical relatedness. It's something more than that. It's something more than that. All our guidance, all our direction, all our instruction, all our illumination comes from this book. And a man must be biblically related to God. But more than that, he must be spiritually related to God. For the Bible goes right on to say, Be ye doers of the word, pure religion and undefiled, before God and the Father is this. Before God and the Father is this. And James' reference to the Father is a very important matter in this text. Not only is there this matter of biblical relatedness, but spiritual relatedness. And before a man can call God Father, he must be spiritually related. Before a man can bow his head and with all honesty say, My Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, he must look back to a moment in spiritual history when he was born into the family of God using language almost identical to that which is used in the first chapter of John, James talks about being begotten here, being born here into the family of God by the Word of God, through the Spirit of God. And I want to remind men and women throughout this audience that the Bible says that we have to be born again. Jesus addressing one of the great theologians of his day, not only a theologian, but a mighty engineer, a great engineer, a man who knew more about waterworks than anyone else in his time and generation. 
and indeed devised some of the greatest means of causing Jerusalem to be a city supplied by water. Probably the very answer to the baptism of 3,000 people on the day of Pentecost. Facing him with the challenge which is final and ultimate in every man's life, in any woman's life. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, said to Nicodemus, Except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. He cannot enter the kingdom of God. And I want to remind you that this spiritual relatedness comes when we receive Christ into our hearts and lives. For John 1.12 tells us, As many as received him, Christ, into the heart and life, as many as received him, to them gave he the right, the privilege, the power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name, which were born, which were born. It's a spiritual birth. This epoch, this experience is a spiritual birth, which were born, not of blood, not of human descent, not of human descent, not of the will of the flesh, not merely of human desire, not of the will of man, not of human design. This spiritual birth doesn't come because of your pedigree. I cannot where you were born, where you were educated, how you were cultured, how religious your background. That spiritual birth is not transmitted through heredity. It's not a matter of passing it on through the blood of a father to the son. No, no, no. It's not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man. It's of God. It's a miracle of God. It's the transporting of God's life into the soul of man, as the Puritans used to put it. It is being born from above, born of God, a communication of the life of God into the spirit of man. New birth. When? When you open the door of your heart and in true repentance and faith receive Christ into your heart and life. Spiritual relatedness. Pure religion. Genuine religion. Real religion. And undefiled before God. And the Father is this. I want to ask you, my friend, have you got the real thing? Have you got the real thing? Driving with a friend just recently down one of the great highways here, and I saw a big poster, bill poster, and it struck me. I thought, my... That would make a good sermon. That would make a good sermon. The words in clear lettering right across that hoarding, that bill poster, were these. Beware of substitutes. Have you got the real thing? Have you got the real thing? Have you got pure religion? Have you got real religion? God's answer to social unconcern there in the first instance then is the reality of true religion, pure religion. What is it? Biblical relatedness. A relationship that's based upon the revelation of God through his word. Spiritual relatedness. A relationship which comes through the receiving of Jesus Christ into your heart and life so that you know this epoch, this experience we call new birth. May I ask you very personally, sir, have you been born again? Have you true religion? And in a country where Christianity is the sort of national religion where you can't stop anyone and ask him, is he a Christian, without his replying, what do you think I am, a heathen? Where dialogue and tolerance and so-called repartee has brought a sort of gray color into the situation and people are quite nebulous as to what it really means to be born again, to be genuine Christians. I want to ask you, have you got the real thing? Is your life biblically related to God? Is your life spiritually related to God? Have you pure religion? Now, we've got to settle that. That's point number one. But it's absolutely fundamental. 
But I hurry on to say next, that God's answer to social unconcern is not only the reality of true religion, but secondly, the activity, the activity, the activity of true religion. The activity of true religion. And I want you to notice this, and this is what a lot of our evangelicals just have bogged down and have not followed through on what the Word of God has to say. Follow this very carefully. First of all, then, what I'm calling the reality of true religion. Secondly, the activity of true religion. Pure religion and undefiled before God and the Father is this, to visit the fatherless and widows in their affliction. To visit the fatherless and widows in their affliction. Ah, says James, if you know what it is to be biblically related to God, if you know what it is to be spiritually related to God, this reality of true religion will find itself working out in an activity of true religion. You won't be able to hold it back. It has within it this very inherent power to act, to work, and to work redemptively. And I want you to notice in two respects. First of all, in what I'm going to call deliberately social involvement. Social involvement. Or if you prefer, involvement in social needs. Involvement in social needs. If I know pure religion, if God is real to me through his word, if I'm a child of God, then I cannot close my eyes to the social needs of my generation. I cannot do it. I cannot do it. For if I know pure religion, it will work out in terms of involvement in social needs to visit the fatherless and widows in their effect. Now, of course, James' reference to this is very significant. Orphans and widows right down through the ages of history, have been the crying example of human need. I don't know anything that appeals to people's hearts like orphanages down through the centuries. Whether we think of the orphanage of a George Whitfield or a George Muller, whether we think of the great orphanage of C.H. Spurgeon away there in London during his great ministry, or whether we think of the orphans in Korea or the orphans now in Vietnam. Some of you young people don't know the experience. You know nothing about it. You're completely sheltered and hidden from this kind of thing. But I wonder if you walk down the eastern cities or in the great hovels of Africa or perhaps India or even down in the ghettos of our own city and watched little orphans uncared for. They don't know father. They don't know mother. And there they are eking out an existence, not living, just existing. I don't know anything that pulls the heartstrings like the story of little orphans. God's word, Exodus 22, 22, commands that such little orphans, yes, and widows be cared for. It was a command of God that came down through the centuries. And in the early church, the orphans were the burden of the church, and so were the widows. And it's an amazing thing how often, right throughout the New Testament, exhortation is given to care for the widows. One of the first, one of the first social actions taken by the early church in Acts chapter 6 was the care of the widows. The care of the widows. Husband is God. Guardian is God. Money winner is God. And there is a helpless woman. And in the East, no longer a candidate for marriage. She's been married. She's had her day. She's had her children. That's it. She's a widow. And for her life is over unless she's taken care of. In the pastoral epistles, Paul is ever exhorting the deacons and the elders and the pastors to take care of the widows. Jesus warned the Pharisees not to devour widows' houses, 
not to take these poor women by storm, not to seduce them, not to steal their money. Now, that's the immediate context, but needless to say, James is only using this as an illustration of social needs in the generality. And I believe every single man of God, every single woman of God, every young person here should have a social concern. If you haven't, I doubt the reality and relatedness of your spiritual experience to God. I don't know how anyone, how anyone behind the pulpit or in the pew can consider what's happening around us today without being concerned about the ghettos, about the poverty, about the violence, about the riots, about the things that are happening in our land. And the question is, what is our responsibility? First of all, in prayer and then in social action. While I do not believe that we should ever substitute the pulpit for the protest march, while I believe we should never in any way deflect the emphasis of our task from direct evangelism to that which is purely social, I believe these things go hand in hand, even as in the ministry of our Lord Jesus Christ, who never ceased to preach the eternal gospel, but at the same time raised the dead, cleansed the lep, healed the sick, broke bread and gave to the malt, touched the eyes of the blind, and sent forth his apostles to do the same. I believe everyone here in this audience has an area in which they can translate what I'm talking about in terms of practical concern and compassion for the needs of men and women. Now, in case I'm talking to some critics here tonight or cynics here tonight, I want to just pause a moment and say, for your information, that Christianity has been the foremost, the foremost force in the world for 2,000 years in doing this very thing. I want to tell you that all education was born in the cradle of Christianity. There isn't a major university in our country today that hasn't in its charter the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Harvard, Yale, look at the charters. Harvard, the great university, was built and founded for one thing, to train evangelists for the evangelization of the world. To this very day, you'll see that in the Harvard Charter. Same with Yale. Same with Princeton. Same with our universities. And the very universities today that forbid you to pray, to bow your hair, your head, and acknowledge God, to name him in class, and to preach the gospel, who blaspheme his name and undermine the faith, were founded by Christianity. I want to tell you that most of the hospitals in this land today and across the seas were born out of the preaching of the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. And the hospitals right here in New York, for the most part, are named by the very denominations of the gospel apostles that we know about. St. Luke's Hospital, Presbyterian Hospital, and more. I want to say at this very hour at which I speak, the greatest force for evangelizing the world and going across the seas and carrying money and love and compassion and evangelism to the far ends of the earth comes not from any atheistic organization or philanthropic one, but the Christian church. But having said all that, it's very easy to comfortably sit down at a church like Calvary Baptist Church here tonight for their conditioned auditorium and to listen to a sermon and do absolutely nothing about it. And I want to tell you, my beloved friends, that my heart is burdened. My heart is aching. There's a big, big sore at the heart of my, my being concerning this great need in our country at this hour. And I believe the Christian church and the evangelical church should be doing far more than what is being done, principally in prayer, but also in works. God's answer then to social unconcern is not only reality of religion, but activity of religion. And that activity of religion, notice carefully, Involvement 
in social needs. But so we shan't get deflected, I want you to notice that it's not only involvement in social needs, but secondly, commitment to moral needs. And here is where we could have easily slipped over and not seen it. But close exegesis gives us the secret here. There's a little word here that we could easily pass over. And if you weren't observing, you could pass it over and not interpret it. But look again. Pure religion and undefiled before God and the Father is this. Listen carefully. To visit. To visit. To visit. The fatherless, the orphans, and the widows. Scholars maintain that James is quoting here a great passage from the old book. That's the Old Testament. Quoted again in Luke 1, 68 and 78. The Lord God of Israel has visited his people to redeem them. The day star or day, day star, day spring from on high hath visited us. The relevance there and the meaning there are inseparable, we're told. And I like it. I like it because the more I've looked into this, the more I realize that my task is not only involvement in social needs, but commitment to moral needs. And as I go to deal with the orphans, as I go to deal with the widows, as I go to deal with the drug addicts, as I go to deal with the ghetto dwellers, as I go down to do a task where the darkest night reigns right in this so-called civilized land, I've got to go on the basis of the visit of the Son of God. The day spring from on high hath visited us. Now, why did he come? Did he come only to open blind eyes? Did he come only to raise the dead and heal the sick and cleanse the leper? You know as well as I do. The answer is no. The reason for the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ from heaven's glory to earth's gloom, the reason why he came was not only to demonstrate pure religion as he lived, but ultimately to go to the cross and die upon that cross and shed his precious blood for the remission of sins, for the uplifting of man spiritually, redemptively, morally. Now, I spent nearly three hours with my friend Dave Wilkerson the other day and another three hours with Tom Skinner on this issue. And both of them in separate conversations concurred absolutely and completely on the burden I have. I know we ought to be concerned about the ghettos. I know we ought to be concerned about the dark places of the earth. I know we ought to be concerned about the riots and the violence and so forth. But all of them said, and both of them said to me the same thing. Brother Olford, Brother Olford said, Dave Wilkerson, this coming summer we're taking homes right down in Harlem and elsewhere. And we're going to have a team of seven. We're going to have a man and his wife and five others. And they're going to live right there. Some of them are PhDs. Some of them are doctors. Some of them are lawyers. We're giving a year, absolutely free, a year of their whole life, a year, to go right down there and live and preach and witness and talk and show compassion. And I said to him, and why are you adopting this method? Why, said Dave Wilkerson, because we have studied and studied and restudied the situation, and we found whole areas in Harlem that were taken over of civic projects or social projects, where money was poured in, houses were rebuilt, refurbished, luxury for Harlem at any rate was installed, people were put in, and two years have gone by, and there's more dope peddling in that street than any other street in Harlem, and the conditions are now worse than when they were first initiated. And that if men are going to be changed, they've got to be changed morally before they can be changed socially. 
And man has to be changed from heart to circumference, as I was saying earlier tonight. Heart to circumference, center to circumference. Man must be changed inwardly before he can be changed outwardly. For as a man thinketh, so is he. The heart of man is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. And unless you change him at center, you won't change him at circumference. So when I talk about the activity of true religion, I'm talking not only about involvement in social needs, I'm talking about commitment to moral needs. I talked to Tom Skinner, and what did he say? He said, Brother Olford, I want to tell you this. Nobody bleeds in his heart for his own people like I do. And I agree with a sermon I heard you preach over radio a little while ago, that the answer is not a black man. The answer is not a white man. The answer is a Christ man. And this is true. But he said, even to give jobs to our people is not sufficient because the history of poverty and the history of indolence and idleness has made them almost impotent. And unless I can give them a moral, a moral power to work, to want to work, an inclination to lift themselves, then he said it's wasted money. And I can prove it by statistics across the country. Do you see what I mean? Do you understand what I say? This is why I have never departed and never will, God helping me from the centrality of the word of God, from the preaching of the gospel, from direct evangelism for social involvement without moral commitment makes the whole thing collapse. And that brings me to my closing thought, which wraps up all I've said before. God's answer to social unconcern is not only the reality of pure religion, the activity of pure religion, but in the third place, the vitality of pure religion. The vitality of pure religion. Pure religion and undefiled before God and the Father is this, to visit the fatherless and widows in the reflection and, listen, to keep unspotted from the world. To keep unspotted from the world. To me, this is highly significant because I'm going to tell you there are many well-wishers, many good-intentioned gospel preachers and evangelists and pastors who step down from the evangelistic platform or the church pulpit to go into social work, and before they knew what had happened, they had become utterly and completely entangled and lost all the vitality of their Christianity. Why? Because they'd become spotted by the world. Horatius Bonar, many, many, many years ago, made a statement which I can never forget. Looking across the church of his day and recognizing its weakness, pointed out that the weakness of the church of Jesus Christ is always when the world infiltrates the church. And he said, I looked for the world. I found it in the church. I looked for the church. I found it in the world. While I talk about God's answer to social unconcern in terms of the reality of true religion, the activity of true religion, let's make sure that we know the vitality of true religion. And what is the vitality of true religion? I'll put it in two forms. First of all, that it triumphs in the world. And then secondly, that it testifies to the world. It triumphs in the world. Yes, to visit the fatherless and the widows in their affliction and to keep himself unspotted from the world. Now, there's only one man who can keep himself unspotted from the world. I'll tell you who he is, the man who lives in victory. For this is the victory which overcometh the world, even our faith. What is the world? The world is described to us and defined to us by the Apostle John. The world, all that is in the world is a spirit, an organized spirit, which he says is summed up in the lust of the eyes the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life. The world has its seductions. The world has its seducing spirits, if you like. 
its allurements, its ambitions. The world is a cruel, tough, tempting place. Unless I know what it is to trust an almighty Savior indwell in me by the power of His Spirit, unless I know what it is to have my daily quiet time, unless I know what it is to battle in prayer and to bring down the strongholds of Satan, unless I know what it is to count on the indwelling Lord to be in me stronger than the power in the world, I'll become, I'll become spotted with the world to triumph in the world. Thank God for men and women who've gone to the far ends of the earth, who've gone into areas that we don't know anything about in New York City, where the oppression of spiritual forces is so great that you feel as if you're going to suffocate. Missionaries have told me that there are times when satanic forces have surrounded them and they felt that they were in a world of darkness even at midday and pressure came upon them and they felt they could hardly breathe until they knelt and claimed the blood of Jesus and the mighty power of Satan to power of Christ to throw back the forces of Satan. But that is also true in a measure even in a city like New York. I don't know how you feel, but so often walking down these very streets, so often looking out of my window and seeking to survey the great city as a city over which I should weep, over which I should feel compassion. I have sensed the strength and might of Satan, and I've cried for God to be greater in me than he who is in the world, the vitality of true religion, the indwelling power of the Son of God. Greater is he that is in you, than he that is in the world. But not only this matter of triumphing in the world, but testifying to the world, and I believe James has this in mind when he talks about being unspotted from the world, and this word unspotted from the world occurs three or four times in the New Testament. The Lord Jesus Christ is called the Lamb, that's without spot, and the reference there is, of course, to his holy life, his holy life which testified to his contemporary world. John could point him out as he walked and say, Behold the Lamb of God that taketh away the sin of the world. When Paul charges young Timothy to be the pastor of that church at Ephesus, he says, I charge thee to keep the commandment, the charge I give you without spot and unrebukable until the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Same word. When Peter describes the moment when the elements are going to melt with fervent heat, when the world is going to be wound up and God's going to introduce his eternal kingdom, in that moment, he says, be found in peace without spot, unspotted by the world. And I tell you, one of the most wonderful things in all the world, one of the most wonderful things in all the world is to see a Christian in the midst of a city like this, pure as a lily, noble, strong, sweet, unspotted, testifying to his contemporary world. And I'm not asking too much, for I'm not asking any more than the scriptures. We've had the accumulative effect and impact of 2,000 years of Christianity. There's such a thing as the continuity of history, the sense of history. When Paul said these words, and James said these words, and John said these words, he was talking to Christians who had just begotten of the Spirit of God in pagan cities without any background of Christianity at all. And right there in the cesspool of iniquities with all the wretched sin and debauchery around them, he expected them to live holy lives. One of the most beautiful things to ever see is to see a lily, a pure white, fragrant lily growing in garbage. I was driving in a taxi cab up one of our streets just a little while ago, 
and as my custom is, I went witnessed to the cab driver. I detected a Jamaican accent, and I said to him, where do you come from in Jamaica? Is it Montego Bay? Is it Brownstown? Is it Kingston? He looked around with a row of white teeth and smiled at me as much to say, at last I found a friend. He said, what do you know about Jamaica? Oh, I said, I love Jamaica. I've been there often preaching. I'm a preacher. He said, hallelujah. And I'm telling you, he just drew aside and stopped his old flag and clock and said, let's talk. And we talked. I told him about Calvary Baptist Church. I told him about the ministry here. And he looked around at me and there was a wistful look in his eyes. Indeed, tears began to fill his eyes. He said, I come from a brethren assembly in the city of Kingston. And he said, I remember the day when I trusted Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior as a result of the ministry of Mr. Harold Wildish. And he said, I learned to live the victorious life. And I praise God for the ministry of Mr. Wildish to my heart. And he said, I left Jamaica to come to this country to make some money. I'm going back very soon. But he said, I never, never, never thought I would find such wickedness and sin and temptation as I found in this city. I'm so lonely. You're the first Christian I'd met. Aleli, Aleli. That's one illustration. My closing illustration. But listen to me carefully. I go back to Jamaica for it too. I was over there three or four years ago speaking at a convention. They call it the Keswick in Kingston. Night after night, I shared the ministry with one of my British brethren, and we were having a great time. 3,000 or more people gathering every night as the shadows fell upon that lovely school grounds right there at the heart of Kingston. And God was moving in mighty power. And one night after I'd preached, a very handsome young Jamaican came up to me, and I could see by his blazer badge that he was a university student. He told me that he was the chairman of the social committee of a student group at the university. And he said, sir, I have listened to you now for four or five nights. I've been deeply moved by your message. And I believe devotionally I've been helped. But he said, I'm concerned about something. I'm really concerned about something. I said, what is it? He said, I just want to ask what relevance the message that you've been giving has to our social needs throughout Jamaica. Do you know Jamaica? Do you know that there are the rich and the absolutely poor? Do you know that there are kids who walk around without clothes from January to December? Were it not for the weather, which is so benign here, they would die. Some of them don't know what it is to have a square meal. There is poverty beyond all description, squalor and death. What relevance has this message you're preaching to that need? Well, I'm telling you, he was an eloquent young fellow, and there was determination in his face. When he had finished what he had to say, I was lost for words for a moment. And even as I paused to answer him, I sensed the great strong presence of my friend Harold Wildish standing alongside of me. He said, Brother Olford, do you mind if I answer his question? I said, go right ahead, sir. Go right ahead. And any of you who know this man, Harold Wildish, who gave out a lucrative job as a young man and went to the Amazon forests for Jesus Christ and pioneered the gospel and built churches there until malaria absolutely riddled his body. He had to be sent back and then subsequently went to Jamaica and for the last 40 years has preached his heart out throughout those islands. And he looked at this young man and he said, young man, I'm thankful for that question and I understand the reality and relevance of it. But he said, I want to answer that question. He said, you're only a child. 
He's that I've been preaching throughout these islands for 40 years. There's hardly a part of Jamaica that I don't know this beloved island in the sun. And he said, I want to take you now for a moment on a geographical and spiritual trip side by side. Sit down there. And he made the young fellow sit down. He said, 40 years ago when I came here, shriveled up and riddled by malaria, God gave me a burden to plant churches right across the island. And I know that this was an island full of slaves. Slaves, yes, to the British government, but now liberated without any knowledge of marriage, without any knowledge of wealth, without any knowledge of education, and many places without any knowledge of God. He said, I started and I started to preach. And he said, I went into the squalid ghettos that you're talking about and I put down my tent and I began to preach the gospel and I saw God take hold of half-naked Jamaicans and gloriously transform their lives. And I saw men and women and boys and girls saved and I saw them not only saved, but I saw them changed. And I saw them get the incentive to work go to school, educate themselves, and now I want to take you. Do you know such and such a place? Eh? That was one squalid ghetto. It's now a thriving assembly of God and a village all around it and a township going on for God. And practically everybody in that town is converted through the preaching of the gospel. Do you know B? He described the same. Do you know C? He described the same. Do you know E? He described the same. The young man was breathless. He said, that's the power of the gospel. And that's the relevance of the message that this man Alford has given tonight to the need in the ghettos of Jamaica. It's unanswerable, unanswerable chapter and verse for it all. That's why we have a pulpit tonight. That's why we have an open Bible. That's why we have a living Lord. This is David Olford. You have been listening to a message from God's Word delivered by my late father, Dr. Stephen F. Olford, who went to be with the Lord in the year 2004. If you wish to learn about our online resources or learning events at the Institute for Biblical Preaching, our web address is olford.org. That's O-L-F-O-R-D dot org. You also may want to benefit from our online video training on expository preaching, which can also be found on our website. Thank you so much for listening.